Let's do this. The Cult of Hockey podcast by the faithful and for the faithful. The Evans Journal. I'm here today with Bruce McCurdy. Welcome, Bruce. Hey, David. How are you doing today? Good. Another glum, rainy day in Edmonton. I'd like to uh, welcome um, all of our fantastic fans, the faithful, the wisest hockey fans in the world, Bruce. That's who listens to this podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's the diehards that uh, keep on listening right through the dog days of monsoon season. That's what we should be calling it this year. Holy moly. Yeah, the monsoon used to come in June in Alberta. Yeah. Uh, here it is in July. So today, Bruce, we're going to talk about um, the Josh Archibald signing by the Oilers. Uh, so we actually have like a real signing to talk about. We're going to talk about the possibility. Uh, we'll end off with that. The possibility of moving Milan Lucic now that his bonus has been paid. And we'll take a little deeper dive because that's what I've been doing this week into Tyler Wright replacing Bob Green. And uh, whether that's a good move or a bad move and just how difficult it is actually to assess that kind of decision. Start with Josh Archibald. He's a uh, 26-year-old right shot winger. Uh, that the Oilers signed this year, one-year contract, $1 million. What's your take? Uh, my take is it's another uh, small, safe uh, NHL-caliber bet by Ken Holland. It's another Band-Aid. It's another uh, one-year, $1 million class contract. In fact, exactly that amount in the case of Archibald. And... Uh, they got a decent player who's going to play for the Oilers for that price. So, uh, you know, there's not much to criticize about Archibald. I mean, the, the issues the Oilers face are a little higher up the lineup, right? But uh, Archibald last year, 68 games, 12 goals, 10 assists, 22 points. That's pretty good third-line production, especially when you line it up against the, uh, you know, the Edmonton Oilers, who only had five forwards who scored in double digits well. Between Marcus Granlund and Archibald, now they're up to seven at least. And, uh, you know, those are, he killed penalties a little bit. Uh, he played a physical game, 161 hits, you know. He's uh, not that big of a guy, but uh, uh, my recollection of him is uh, uh, not in any kind of great detail, of it, but of him being kind of a pain of a butt to, uh, play, to play against. This is a case, Bruce, I think, of um, the Oilers... Uh, filling in for a Shirelli, uh, for a Shirelli move. They traded Drake Kajula last year. I'm mm -hmm. not as big a Drake, like a lot of people, oh, how could you do that? Like at the time, uh, it was pretty clear to me that Ken Hitchcock had had enough of the player after a short viewing. And mm -hmm. the reason is because Kajula, I think, was a, is, is at that time, maybe he's going to get better. He's terrible defensive NHL winger. Just like, honestly, terrible. Um Poor at playing this position in the own zone, poor uh, in the D zone, poor at winning battles, leaking goals and scoring major scoring chances against. Now, Archibald and Kajula over the last two years at even strength have had almost identical uh, point production. So this he, this guy seems like a great fill-in on that third line slot um, for Kajula. And that's a needed fill-in because um, the Oilers didn't really have an obvious candidate there. Sounds like he's 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 similar to Kajula in a lot of ways. A smaller, feisty player with a little bit of maybe a wee bit of offensive game. But I, I hope Archibald is a much better defensive player. And it sounds like he might be. That seems to be the kind of the verbal coming out of Arizona. He, he, he actually sounds so good at this contract amount, Bruce, 
Mm-hmm. But I, the one thing that doesn't make sense is why Arizona didn't keep them. They just had, you know, they, they I guess they, he, he could have taken them to arbitration. Right. Stoffer's been saying on orders yep. now. They didn't want to do that. They are pressed up right, right on the cap. So they really have no, no wiggle room at all. So maybe that's why. Maybe it's as simple as that. Like he just, but if he's a really good player, mm-hmm. um, why didn't they keep him in Arizona? And I don't why have did, an answer for that. Why didn't they sign him for a million dollars rather than take him to arbitration? Well, exactly. So I don't have, do you have an, any thoughts? We have, I haven't seen him enough to say, so I can't say, but they're not, well, I don't think they're stupid down there. They, they finished with more mm-hmm. points than the Oilers and they had what, who was on their team last year? Nobody. Not McDavid. So, <laughs> yeah. Or Dreisaitl. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, they, um, um, I guess that, that was the concern was that uh, Archibald had had a good enough season with enough sort of breath to his game that uh, he might get awarded more in arbitration than they were willing to pay and, and still at a low enough level that they're not allowed to walk away. Like I can't remember. There's some kind of threshold value where below which the team has to accept the arbitrated contract and above which they can walk away from the guy and just let him go as a free agent. But I think Archibald's in the lower echelon of that. Hey, Bruce, could you just check one thing? I don't, do you know how to force quit stuff? It seems like there's a little bit of a lag in the video yep. right now. Can you just, for, it's, if you can force quit as we're doing this and yep. actually lose this, it might um, speed up, like it sync our sync our timing better on the podcast so we're not okay. inadvertently talking over one another. Um, yeah, so overall, I think uh, pretty decent signing and uh, it's, it's in line with uh, the signings, which... Holland has made he's been extremely hampered by the salary cap he has a very little wiggle room even with buying out Sakura I know people are questioning that but even with buying out Sakura there's almost no wiggle room right now for this guy to, to make any moves at all so um I think this was a this was uh this fit into that category of smart smaller moves and uh, good for the GM for making it Bruce, let's move on and talk about the Tyler Wright for Bob Green um, replacement, where the Oilers moved out Bob Green, um, who with with Keith Gretzky is Bob Green's been the head scout since the McDavid draft in 2015, and uh, uh, so what do you? I've written about <laughs> eight thousand words probably on this in the last week, digging yeah. into it, and the reason I dug so deeply into it is is this. Looking at both Ken Holland's um, drop of results in Detroit, and the same thing happened with Dave Tippett, a really good coach in Dallas, and then not so much in Arizona. I was kind of trying to figure out why. Why do these two guys who had so much success then suddenly become not having much success at all? And the common denominator, Bruce, was terrible drafting in both the Phoenix organization and the Detroit organization. Not terrible in Detroit, but mediocre after 2004. They went from being the best having one of the greatest runs of drafting in NHL history over two decades. I think that their record and Barry Fraser's record overall, when you combine it all together, those two decades for the Oilers and the Red Wings, uh, from, for the Oilers during Fraser's time, and, and uh, of course it was mainly concentrated at the front, but Detroit for 20 years from 1983 to 2004, fantastic, and Detroit had a great team. But what, what went wrong after that was poor drafting, and... Um, they didn't get they didn't get enough what I call Big Twelve players, Bruce. 
the big 12 players, especially in a capped NHL are, are critical to your success. So the, the top two, the top forwards on both the first and second line, uh, they're that it, also including a third line kind of um, Swiss army knife player could be a great checker, a great two-way player on your third line, your top 4D and your number one goal. You have to get, looking at that, that, that great run of Detroit drafting, Bruce, I ascertained that for a team to be considered a success in drafting, and this isn't as good as Detroit was there, but it was, it's close. You got to get one big 12 player on average every year in a draft. You have to get a Team Canada quality player, someone who's good enough to make Team Canada, even on the fourth line of Team Canada. You have to get that kind of player at least once every four years. You have to make really, you have to make excellent use of your top. If you ever have a top 10 pick, you have to make excellent use of it. That doesn't mean you have to hit every single one of them. That's not a reasonable expectation, but you got to hit about four out of five of them or maybe five out of six of them. And finally, in your later rounds, you have to get a big 12 player at least every second year in the draft um, for it to work out for you. Because not all your first round picks are going to work out. So you, you're going to have to get in, in the, after the second round, or excuse me, after the first round, at least one big 12 player every second year. And that's at least. Because, because Fraser and the Detroit Red Wings in their two decades runs, they were doing it almost every year, Bruce, on average finding a, a big 12 player mm -hmm. after the first round. So that's the very, very best drafting teams. But to make, to be a playoff team in the NHL, you don't have to be that good. And that's what I was kind of looking at, like to, to be a playoff team. So those were the criteria I kind of established for success or for rating a draft. What did you think uh, of, you know, all that? So I've kind of set up the criteria here. Uh, you may agree with them or disagree with them, but what do you think of the right or green move right uh well first of all i enjoyed your series and i'm not sure you're probably not done yet you still have a piece to go or you've been detailed I, I might look into the composition of because i it, it also occurred to me like one of the reasons detroit failed is because i think they they all got complacent including hall and they kept the same old scouts around same happened at edmonton that's why you keep the same old scouts around even though they were brilliant for five years they stopped being brilliant after a while because i think it's just so damn hard to do i think it's just entails so much intensity so much hard work that people can't keep that up for decade after decade after decade so um yeah i might look into did tyler Wright in terms of turnover of that detroit staff how did he do in that regard right. and what's what is needed right now on the Oilers staff in terms of turnover right. i do think they need to, to to move out two or three people right now and bring in two or three new ones so in other words evaluate the roster not just of the players that they pick but of the scouts that they had doing the work Oh, definitely, Bruce. Yeah, they had right. terrible results mm -hmm. for a long time. The orders did mm -hmm. until recently, yeah. until Green and uh, Gretzky. So, yeah. well, I've been focusing this last while um, on the depth prospects in the Oilers system, uh, and of course, one of the issues here is that there's a, a there's a tremendous lag time uh, before you can evaluate really fairly what a scout can do. And I mean, uh, my most recent post, I talked about all the fine players who specifically went through the NC2A route uh, that the Oilers uh, had drafted. They had an excellent run between 96 and 2006, a little team that could era, uh, which was the end of Barry Fraser and basically Kevin Prendergast. And that time they picked Tom Pody, Fernando Fasani, Sean Horkoff, Mike Comrie, Brad Winchester, Matt Green, Chris Vandevelde, Jeff Petrie, all in the second round or later. 
and they all went on to to from decent to very good NHL careers. Uh, you know, Sean Horkoff played a thousand games, and he definitely was a Big Twelve player. And uh, uh, I certainly say the same about uh, Mike Comrie, Tom Pody, and Jeff Petrie. I would say all would yes, classify as as Big Twelve. And I, I would also include Pisani Bruce. Like he didn't mm-hmm. have a long run in the NHL, but he mm-hmm. had a very he he was a third line a driver. Third line player. He was of that quality to be a Big Twelve player. Yeah, mm-hmm. he was a third line driver for so that's, sure. That's 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 meeting the test and then some for for those draft years and that's just that specific kind of player of course but and then since then uh especially the Stu mcgregor era and the book isn't quite closed on that uh for the nc2a players but i listed a whole ton of guys you know jordan benfeld and kyle bigos and liam coughlin and i won't name you all the other guys because they you know the names really don't mean anything none of them made it uh with only a couple of exceptions <clears throat> being Jujar Kara and uh, Tyler Pitlick, who at least have NHL careers. And those guys actually pulled out of U.S. college and went with a different route, put them into major junior. So that, that, whole, that whole feeder system just dried completely up for Edmonton. But the point is that even Stu McGregor, uh, he picked William Lagason or his group picked the William Lagasse in 2014. Yeah. Five years later, we still have no no real firm idea of what we got. And uh, I happen to ascribe to the low tide rule of five years, wait five years, and before you evaluate, obviously there are exceptions. Sometimes you know right away on a really good or really bad uh, pick. But a lot of these guys, and especially those college-level players, five years is almost the norm before, you know, even they're in the pro uh, system, let alone at the NHL level. So it's really hard to, s- to step back and say, well, Bob Green's collection of picks is a failure. I think it's much, you, you can certainly make a valid case. Stu McGregor's collection of uh, of picks was underwhelming. Uh, there's actually some pretty decent guys bubbling under right now, including three or four guys in the NC2A route, but it's too early to tell. But what all I can tell you is that the Oilers have got, got almost nothing on the NHL roster from that source for a decade and so it's uh uh it's tough to say we can say i think we can say bob green did a better job than Stu mcgregor and you made the case i think that he did a better job than uh tyler wright did in an equivalent era in detroit and so why the change yeah i i don't think it's obvious at least Mm -hmm. so first of all what you said about the difficulty of evaluating uh players that you know is very difficult you have does take about five years to know mm-hmm. the problem if you're an nhl gm is you don't have five yeah no you don't uh, have five years like you've got it so well, i Ken think Holland does <laughs> well maybe he does but if you've wasted those five years yeah. on the wrong scout on the wrong head scout you've screwed your franchise for the mm-hmm. next five years mm-hmm. that's the whole problem and that's what happened to the orders we've had two runs barry fraser he's as good a scout as you'll find in nhl history but he had a five-year run between 1986 and 1990 where he didn't get one Big 12 player, Bruce, uh, from those five drafts from uh, 1986 to 1990, and not one Big 12 player. And I think that's as big – you know, it, it, it's a huge reason why the Oilers were such a terrible team in the 90s. There's obviously other reasons, selling Gretzky and Messier. And, yeah. And stuff, but that is another reason. So, And then the Oilers go through another let's, – let's face it – terrible spell with Stu McGregor. And and even before then, Kevin Prendergast, who was mediocre at best. And this is why they're a mediocre team. Well, this is why we have the decade of darkness, because of 
Prendergast and McGregor. Just terrible. Just they did terrible work. Like honestly, it's just not. And the, but the funny thing is, most of us, including me and and others even more than me, were totally sold on Stu McGregor for a long time. He got the best press in Edmonton until like even in you know 2011, 2012, people were still. This is he started in 2008. People are singing McGregor's praises in 2011, 2012. And this does speak to the hard, the difficulty in, in rating a scouting director also. Um, and, and accurately. So it's really, it's difficult to rate Tyler Wright and Bob Green's work in the last mm-hmm. five years right now. Now you can go back with Tyler Wright though and look at his work in Columbus and in Detroit. And it's pretty, I would say, uninspiring, Bruce. There's not... Like in terms of Team Canada quality players, the only one jumping out right now is Dylan Larkin, and he'd be hard pressed to make Team Canada. And all those seven—that's I think it's eight drafts, two in Columbus, eight and six in Detroit for Tyler Wright. Mm-hmm. Only one of them, one player right now, has that kind of possible quality to him. So there's other guys we don't know how Philip Zadina, of course, and right. there's a lot of people who are really high on um, Tyler Wright's sure, draft in 2018 for Detroit. Mm-hmm. He got Joe Valino, he got Zadina, he got it. And and Ken Holland really compiled a ton of high draft picks in recent years. So it may well turn out that Tyler Wright did some really great work. Mm -hmm. But it's not really looking like that at this point. It looks like mediocre work at best, like average work at best. Now, Bob Green, it's looking like there's a chance it could be better. It looks like it's going to be at least mediocre or average work. Mm-hmm. But could be really good or even great, depending on how players like in the end, how players like um, Benson, um, Bouchard, McLeod, um, Yamamoto, mm-hmm. Samarukov, yeah. uh, Caleb Jones, Kirill Max, Maximov turn out. So there's a lot of players who have trended up. So I think if an NHL GM is, they, I think they have to make a decision on a scouting director after about three years, honestly. They can't wait that long. So it's probably hard, but you just have to look and see how players are trending in those. And if you see a scouting director isn't doing well in those first three years, if those players aren't the map, you know, the vast majority of aren't, aren't trending up, you, you need to fire that player scouting director right now. Um, I think because, and the other funny thing is Bruce, most scouts do their best work. It seems make their best picks early in their tenure. So. Yeah. Well, anyway. it's those seven guys that, you just named, uh, I think they're all populated among our top 12 prospects for the Oilers right now. So these are guys that are closer that certainly we foresee a significant upside for, but we can't tell you conclusively about any of them. And just to go back a bit, you want to talk about how difficult it is to make a, uh, uh, to evaluate a draft. I mean, the 2010 uh, draft where the Oilers had three second round uh, draft picks and they had, uh, of course, Taylor Hall in the first round, and, and there was really no um, no argument that they, you know, that they picked as good a player who yeah, was available in that draft. Uh, but then they had Tyler Pitlick at 31, Martin Marinson at 46, uh, uh, Hamilton, uh, Curtis Hamilton at 48, uh, uh, Ryan Martindale at 61. These all, you know, big scale, talented. Uh, guys, and that draft projected really well, and all of those guys bombed. 
Uh, but yeah, not one Big Twelve player. Yeah, yeah. But Martin Marinson, I mean, let's let's just focus on him as an example. The five-year rule applies to him. Five years after they drafted him, uh, he played eighty-some games in the NHL for the Oilers, but they still didn't know what they had. And Peter Shirelli, the new GM, traded him for Eric Griba and a and a short-term move. And you know what? It's four years later now, and we still don't know what Martin Marinson is. I still wouldn't tell you 100% for sure he's not going to have an NHL career. But Well, he, I think he's, he's having one. Time, yeah, he's ha- sort of having one, for sure. He's, he's having one. It's a, a very tweener. weird NHL career, that's for sure, as a tweener. But could he still – like, there's always this hope with the guy because he's mm-hmm. 6'5", and he skates yeah. very well, and he and he, he seems to have a bit of skill that he'll yeah. be more than that. But it's in the end, he just loses too many defensive battles in his own zone, too to merit uh to be able to play higher up in the lineup and i think that's what you know so, so you keep him around because he can get by in a third pairing role and he's cheap right but, anyway, but yeah it is it is hard and and uh yeah you know you know bruce bob green would be here today but for two things okay mm-hmm. and i'm not sure it comes. he's really to blame for either of them in fact mm-hmm. he is not i i don't okay Let's for, we'll de- deal with the easy one first. The yes, I pull the RV pick. This and this is similar to the uh, Stu McGregor. She, you know, he get heat for the Neil Yakupov pick, but he wanted to take Ryan Murray. The problem for Stu McGregor is that we all know he wanted to take Ryan Murray, who is not arguably a big twelve player either. But the Oilers were were gearing up to take uh, Mikhail Sergachev, who is I think already a big twelve player, and it, mm-hmm. it, it is certainly training that way. So so in in Bob Green's favor. And that was going to be the pick, but suddenly Pugliarvi fell into their lap and they took him. So that, I guess that is on Bob Green. He could have said, no, 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 this like, like the, like the, uh, but apparently the Finnish GM Kikalainen in Columbus didn't want Pugliarvi because he wanted a center, not because he was necessarily negative on Pugliarvi, but that might've been part of the case as well. But he, so if Green had taken Sergachev or Kachuk with that pick, he'd still be employed today by the Oilers in this chief scouting role, I think. But the other one, of course, is the Griffin-Reinhardt trade. And Green is famously was famously the, 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 um, the face of the Oilers organization in defending that pick and in speaking enthusiastically about Reinhardt. And, of course, Green had had Reinhardt in junior hockey and really loved the player. It's clear. But here's what I would say about that. He didn't make that trade. He, he may have given Shirelli a glowing recommendation, but it was Shirelli who who did the particulars of the trade, like giving up the first pick. That's the GM's decision. What you're going to give up for that player? That's on Shirelli completely. Giving up the first, like maybe giving if if it had been a second pick for Reinhardt, that's a different matter, and people aren't complaining about it today as much. Mm-hmm. But the first and second pick, the price the Oilers paid is completely on Peter Shirelli. It is not on Bob Green at all, and I just think it's it's not fair or accurate to to put it on Green. Mm-hmm. So and the and the second thing is Griffin Reinhardt had played a full year in the AHL. Did the owners not have an AHL scout that year? Isn't the, who is it? Like the Eastern scout apparently is that Paul Messier? Was that his turf? Who was watching? And I don't know, but who was watching Griffin Reinhardt in the AHL that year? And statistically had a mediocre season. Yep. He had had his point scoring hadn't increased in junior hockey. The the scout that Shirelli should have been relying on is not Bob Green, who had a who had a year his his who has his assessment wasn't fresh. It was the AHL scout, and that's really the pro scouting of the Oilers again failing the Oilers. That to me, if you're going to blame a scout, you can blame Bob Green. He was front and center, 
But you, I blame the pro scouts and Shirelli more than I blame Green, who also gets some blame. Yeah, well, the Oilers' entire scouting core was high on Reinhardt uh, in 2012 to the point that they were, they were, uh, as I understand it, legitimately talking about using the number one overall pick uh, on Reinhardt. And in retrospect, I wish they had because then, they, you know, rather than having Yakupov and Reinhardt a separate fiascos, it would have been just the one fiasco. That would so, have been good. Yeah. Anyway, uh, and Bob Green wasn't with the Oilers at that time. So he, to tag him as a uh, part of the old boys club, um, I'm not sure that was entirely fair. I mean, the Oil Kings, of course, are associated with the Oilers uh, at arm's length kind of thing. But uh, uh, Bob Green did his thing and did it well with the Oil Kings. And, you know, uh, his history with Griffin Reinhardt went back to 2009 when he traded up at the draft, the WHL draft. He traded a number nine all the way up to number three in order to pick Griffin Reinhardt, brought him in in 2010, and as soon as he arrived, the team started getting better, and they started getting way better defensively. And Reinhardt's calling card throughout his four years here, including two as captain uh, of the Oil Kings, was, was a solid shutdown play and obviously there's red flags with his skating which either it didn't improve at the way that they expected or maybe they just didn't get a proper read on it who knows but as a shutdown player at the whl level i watched him go a man on man against leon Drysaddle in the 2014 uh, 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 playoffs and basically neutralize him and doing the same thing against the Smurf line of Medicine Hat and doing the same thing against all the stars of Portland Winterhawks in the, in the finals out here. And all the earmarks said, this guy's going to be an NHL player for sure. Now the question is, you know, is he going to be a second pairing, first pairing, third pairing? Today, I have to tell you, David, based on what I saw from his junior career, I am shocked that he's not in the NHL. And clearly he fooled a lot of other people. Bruce, I didn't mind him when he got to the Oilers. Like when I first saw him with the Oilers, I thought, oh, this this guy looks like a bottom pairing NHL D man. Like even then, I thought, oh, this this could work out. Like because he he's big, he's smart, and in the HL he didn't look bad. There was a real tell though with his point scoring, Bruce, in junior hockey. Yeah. If you're going to be a top four NHL defenseman, you're not you're you're not getting you know a point every second game in the in the Western Hockey League. That that's so rare. That, a, that kind of player morphs into a top four D-man in the NHL. And that should have been another, like, uh, along with his poor performance in the AHL, which Green admitted was poor in the, in the interview, um, although he hadn't been the guy scouting him. Um, the, the point scoring, and, and I had watched him because I had watched Reinhardt closely myself because there had all be, been these rumors they are going to trade the dry saddle pick for Reinhardt. And, boy, I was, I was shocked that they yeah. were considering that watching Reinhardt. Because mm-hmm. I did not see the skating in the offensive game as a junior player to merit that kind of enthusiasm for the player. You know, that Oil Kings team that won the Memorial Cup is a very weird team. They, they, I don't know if one player well, from that yeah. entire roster is going to make it as an NA, as a as a Big 12 it's, mm-hmm. or even as a marginal NHL player, Bruce. It's just a weird team where there, there were some good players. Samuelson was a good player, but none of those guys look like they're on track to make it as NHLers. Well, Bob Green, he had uh, he had four years in a row. He had a pick, and I think it was the top four. And he took Mark Pizik, Michael Saint Croix, Griffin Reinhardt, and Curtis Lazar. And mm. I mean, Curtis, was, uh, yeah, and they all were great junior players. Like they were a big part of the reason that team was so successful for for when they were. And Curtis Lazar, I put him in the same boat as Griffin Reinhardt to say this: I am shocked he's not in the NHL as a regular player, like 
whether it be bottom six, top six, you know, penalty killer, all like he's an all around player. And yet uh, it, there is some kind of disconnect between how successful those guys were in, in junior hockey uh, versus what has ultimately transpired at the NHL level. And, uh, you know, for the life of me, I can't really explain it. That was a power. Uh, yeah. And the surprise is that was a powerhouse mm-hmm. Memorial Cup team. They, they, they rolled over their opposition. They suffocated them. They were like the St. Louis Blues. That's, you know, they won the Cup this year. That's how they played. They just were big, tough, mean, and skilled, and they they rolled over the opposition in the end. So, yeah. Anyway, so Green, if he had, if he wasn't so firmly attached to the mm-hmm. Reinhardt trade, and if he without, mm-hmm. he'd be because there's not a lot of other blemishes on it, on his record. We don't know yet about Yamamoto, of course, and we don't know about Bouchard or Broberg. So, mm-hmm. so there's some picks that might not work right. out that we don't know about. But there's a lot that are trending in the right direction, and and um, you know, I. So again, I'm not going to say they made the wrong decision in bringing in Tyler right that's you know you can't say that conclusively but it's not what I what I have written say it's not obvious to me why they made this change and um that it's a good change for the organization and make no mistake this is a key maybe the key hiring and management for Ken Holland and he's got to get this right Tyler Wright has got to get this right so good luck to Tyler Wright I hope he gets it right. And, yeah, and to and to your point, I mean, Bob Green was asked for his opinion on Griffin Reinhardt by Peter Chiarelli. He was not asked, "Would you trade two high draft picks for him?" Yes. Uh, as I understand it, he was just asked about uh, about Reinhardt. And any scouting director worth his salt would want to hang on to his draft picks and use them. I mean, his staff had worked all year to prepare for that draft, and then they got there, and Chiarelli traded number sixteen, number thirty three, number fifty seven, number seventy nine, number eighty six. And I mean, other than the slam dunk that had been the McDavid pick, by the time the the scouts got involved again, they were way up at number one seventeen or something. And then they still picked a couple of pretty good players in Caleb Jones and Ethan Bear. Like they salvaged a, a not bad draft, but most of the picks got traded away for short term fixes. And the impression I got was Shirelli sort of said, "Well, uh, I'm." A, he put a package together to offer for Dougie Hamilton, and when it didn't work, he thought, "Well, here's my package. I'm going to go and get a." A, a more developed defenseman and, and the theory is not totally bad but the execution obviously uh left a lot wanting but uh, uh my friend low tide uh we had a chat about this yesterday on uh, on the radio and uh, he made uh, a similar point about um uh and he used a baseball example as he often does and talked about um uh a scout of the new york mets being asked about jim fergosi as a player and giving a sort of a lukewarm recommendation for Fergosi, but not being told that the package to acquire him would include the great future, great Nolan Ryan and three other guys. And the scout was absolutely floored when he found out what the Mets had given up for him. And all he'd been asked for is what do you think should we get Fergosi? So ultimately the GM owns it and GM owns it good or bad. Like I've also heard uh, over the years, Shirelli haters saying, well, the Talbot trade worked out, but that wasn't really Shirelli. That was all, that was a gift from Sather. Or that was set up by McTavish before he left. And uh, all uh, Shirelli had to do was say yes or whatever. Well, uh, it wasn't a done deal until day two of the draft. And uh, and he got the deal done. And, and uh, that goes on Shirelli's record, as does the uh, as does the Reinhardt trade, as does Marinson for Griva and every other move that he made. It's, uh, you know, it's the GM's, the buck stops there. Indeed. So first, let's finish off with Milan Lucic. So apparently, you know, there's some, there's some debate about this, but In apparently. In your dreams. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I was, 
I wrote <laughs> what you properly ascertained as a somewhat whimsical post. Uh, <laughs> some people take it at face value, the post. It was the top 10 reasons to that another team might want to acquire Milan Lucic. So I was trying to put mm -hmm. the best possible arguments that, mm -hmm. like, if I was Ken Holland, these are the lines that I was trying to, you yeah. know, feed Ken Holland his lines, essentially. And um, and that you would use if you wanted to trade Milan Lucic. Now the, the reason, like, there's been plenty of smoke. Uh, yeah, about there Lucic. is. There, there might be fire. There might be some fire, although I doubt it. But there might be some fire in this next week because apparently this is his his three million dollar bonus has been paid now for this season. So mm -hmm. so that's that the team doesn't have to pay that. Does that also would that also go against the Oilers cap then, or not against the team's cap that has acquired him? You know? No, it's part of the the way I understand it is that the team that would acquire him would get the whole cap. That okay, that's that was what I thought. Even as the other team had paid the actual check, so okay. right. they would yeah, that's, that's four years yeah. four years at six million, and uh, they would only have to pay him sixteen million out of the uh, seemingly twenty four that's owed to him. So you know, there's a there's a substantial uh, cash savings. Um, relative to the contract, but even four years at 16 is awfully steep for uh, where that player is now. So Bruce, a lot of the reasons I gave, look, the reason you trade him, and mm -hmm. I don't hate Lucic on the fourth line. I think he's a decent, he's a, he maybe a decent to good fourth line NHL player right now, especially, but the reason the Oilers, I think, would really want to trade him is because they are well stocked with tough guys and another NHL team might have a real need for a tough guy. Like if you have some young star like uh, Johnny Gaudreau or um, what's the Peterson? Elias in, Pedersen. Elias, yeah. Elias Pedersen in, in mm -hmm. Vancouver and on and on. That It's getting banged up and you want to protect that player. You might want a player like Milan Lucic if you don't have that player already. So I see this as a classic situation where he has more value to another team than he does to the owners who are well-stocked with Zach Cassian, Kara, Darnell Nurse, all these tough guys already. They don't need that kind of guy. Another team might. So most of the reasons revolve around that and the fact that, that Lucic still fills that role. The interesting thing to me, and, and, and I saw a tweet, and I wasn't aware of this because I don't really I engage in Corsi analysis, but... Um, he's Adam, always had good, good uh, possession stats. He's always, always had good had possession had stats, Bruce. Milan Lucic had a better Corsi number at even strength last year on the Oilers than Connor McDavid. Now, to me, I don't buy Corsi numbers. That's exhibit A, why I don't buy them. But a lot of NHL teams do. Like, this is the fact of the matter. They've hired all kinds of people who come out of the Corsi school of thought. Mm -hmm. You'd think, and I don't know if this is true. Like, maybe they just look at Milan Lucic, these Corsi guys, and say, no, 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 no. And that's the way a lot of the Edmonton Oilers fans who, who really rely on Corsi anal analysis look at it. But if you really do believe in those numbers, mm -hmm. I mean, you're looking at someone who had a, had a, the same, essentially the same Corsi relative as McDavid and a better Corsi number than McDavid. Now, against slightly weaker competition, against mm -hmm. weaker competition. But that, that, you know, in classic Corsi um analysis you'd say this could be an undervalued player plus his shooting percentage was low and i actually do think lucic has had some bad puck luck so there's a couple things that analytically inclined people from a certain school might look at this player and say um well this guy isn't as bad as people say right do you think that's fair well i mean to me a lot of those 10 po points that you raised uh all of them had or most of them at least had some degree of validity. I think there's maybe a couple of whimsical comments in there, uh, but they had some degree of validity. Of course, uh, 
the elephant in the room is that contract. And yeah. that's what brings that player down. I mean, if, if Oilers had Milan Lucic under contract for one or 1.5 or even $2 million, you wouldn't be getting anywhere near this kind of stuff. And, and I mean, I, I agree that he still has a, a NHL life as a bottom six player. I won't say fourth liner, but I will say bottom six. And $6 million for a bottom six is just a, a cruel. And unfortunately, yeah. it's uh, it's crushed the Oilers' budget for acquiring uh, wings. Uh, you know, the wing their wing budget goes to, uh, firstly, Milan Lucic, and secondly, to Sam Gagne. And then uh, dribs and drabs after that. Uh, but uh, I don't I don't hate the player. Uh, you know, I've, I've long sort of, like, he's not my favorite player, and he wasn't when he was with Boston or anything, but I, I long sort of admired him and said, you know, that kind of player really has value. But the cliff that uh, he's fallen off in uh, last year and a half, I mean, you could tell that that kind of player type would slow down uh, at some point over the seven-year contract, but there was no anticipating that he would go a year and a half at sort of his normal production rates and then just completely lose his scoring touch and and other elements of his game as well, like his puck handling and just his hands have deserted him to my eye, and, and uh, that's what's going to make him a tough sell. Yeah. So, so the like... I'm okay with him on the fourth line. What I'm worried about is he'd be bumped up to the second line again. I mean, mm-hmm. Stoffer's already talking about him as a second line. We are penciled in with Nugent Hopkins right now. I mean, we had him last year penciled in with Settle, And my worry is that's what's going to happen and we're going to waste more time. You know, it's going to take Tippett 20, 30 games. Fortunately, Tippett, unlike Dallas Aikens, is actually going over video right now, boy, yeah. games, I hear. So that's he will see for his, with his own eyes, his own astute NHL coach eyes, exactly Milan Lucci's level of performance. And Bruce... What we found with our own statistical analysis, like, like going over videotape and, and looking at scoring chances, is that, you know, Corsi had him as the top player, who regular mm-hmm. player who played more than 40 games, top forward. We had him as the worst, mm-hmm. as for a forward. And and that's where I would, that's where I, what I see with, from Lucic is he's the, the worst two-way hockey player forward on the Oilers right now. And and I'm so I'm hoping he does get traded. So, and I, and I didn't put that in the article because... I was trying to persuade people that they should <laughs> acquire him in a trade. So I, although I don't know how persuasive our, my, my own statistic, statistical analysis would be to uh, other GMs, I doubt it would have any impact at all, but I think there's a chance. I'm saying there's a chance, Bruce, that he will be moved. What do you say? Well, uh, for a bad contract. Yeah. The, um, the issue with, um, I mean, you talk about the Corsi analysis, uh, and that's, um, I mean, that's that's what's long been referred to as an underlying number, but it's only part of a much larger stream now of underlying numbers, uh, of which our scoring chances, I would argue, is one such. Uh, certainly things like expected goals, uh, dangerous Fenwick that uh, the boys at Puck IQ have been putting out, and those stats certainly moderate what you might take from Corsi alone. Like it's, Does it's, expected it's, goals, is his expected goals not as good? Uh, it's not as good. And uh, it's, uh, I haven't got the right page. Well, open, that's a but, better stat uh, than Corsi then. Uh, yes. Yeah, there, there are a number of stats that are better than Corsi. Yeah, I looked at Corsi's his stand. Look, his stand kind of matches up with his Corsi. It's not Corsi's that different. more zone time than it is real creation of 
or allowance of dangerous chances. Some of the issues I have with Milan Lucic's game are inside his own blue line. Oh, mostly. Yeah. Like, yeah. mostly. Oh. He's he's like Kajula, like he was leaking chances against. And that's, to me, that if anything's turning me against Lucic, it's his own zone defensive play, Bruce. Like, it's just not acceptable. He's got to get better at it, and he's got to focus more. And and he's, I think he's a, he's, he seems like a smart man. He should be yeah. able to do that if he bears down on it. He should make it his number one priority, Lucic, his own zone play. And um, taking care of things in his own zone. So, if yeah. when that puck comes to you five feet inside the blue line, around the boards with a defenseman on you, it's got to get over the line, and it's got to get over the line consistently. And that's part of his game that he's uh, had some significant issues with. And the other part is when you're back checking, take get get back as hard as you can, as fast as you can, and take someone. Take the take the right guy. Don't puck watch. Don't. You know, don't be in that red red light zone where you're not taking anyone and you're not covering right. a passing lane. Get on someone and cover that passing lane. Like, that was a huge issue with him and Kajula last year. And he's got to get better at it. And it's not mentioned, right? Like, because, I mean, we do this analysis. We see this repeatedly leading to grade A scoring chances against. Maybe other people don't. Uh, I mean, we've time-stamped all of those mistakes. They're there for the for the looking at. If you want to go over the video, um, it's there to see. All right. Anything else to add, Bruce? What do you think? Did you say? Do you think he's going to be moved? Yes, Bruce. Yes or no? Uh, be moved this summer. Uh, probably not, because I mean the con- the contract is such an albatross. Uh, if he is, we'll have some other albatross in its place. And, I mean, the question isn't just you get rid of the player and the problem is solved. The question is, well, what what do you take on in return? And if you take on another $6 million unproductive player like Louis Erickson, like many have pointed out, well, your improvement is marginal at best. Um, so, I mean, they're saddled with a contract, whether it's that contract or one very similar to it. Uh, it's going to create some kind of financial uh, penalty to get out from under it and possibly uh, assets as well to, to move it. So so there's one benefit rock, though. Rock in a hard moving, place. There's one benefit of moving for a equally weak player. Mm-hmm. And that's that you get out from under Lucic's no movement contract, which can impact you yeah. in the expansion draft. And you do it sooner than later. You have more chances to do it down the road, but you do it now. And um, that's the, uh, so, so in doing anything, you're just shuffling the box and in the shuffling, you're making your team better a little, little bit, just because you give you, you got one bad thing out of the way dealt with, you know, you checked it off the list of things to do. And so I, I'm not a fan of the Erickson idea of trading him for that player. Although, except for that, you get rid of that no movement clause. And you also, uh, there's one la- year la- less on Erickson's deal. I think Lucic is, is a more valuable player. Like, I think if Lucic on the open market would get between 2 and $3 million a year right now for on a one-year deal, I don't think Erickson would be lucky to get a contract. And so I think, like, honestly, he, he's had three years in a row of around 10 goals. Mm-hmm. He, he might get a one-year deal at a million dollars. That's as much as I could see him getting. So... Um, James Neal, on the other hand, uh, if he was on the open market, what would he get? Like that's the other player I mentioned. I think James Neal would get on the open market. He'd probably get a one-year deal at about three million, or maybe two and a half. What do you think? Yeah, maybe. Well, oh. maybe not. Maybe he'd only get. Maybe he. That was a pretty bad year, but I think Neal yeah. has more value than than Erickson. Put it that way. 
Yeah, I, I agree with that. He's had 10, 20 goal seasons in a row. And then last year, he just didn't find his place in Calgary. And I think they got impatient real fast. And he wound up kind of an afterthought. And also other guys were working out for them. So it was hard for him to get a, get a toe in the door after the bad start. Sounds like kind of a toxic, like it sounds like the, like the, you know, the verbal around it sounds kind of really negative with Neil and Calgary, which makes me think that they might, there might be a trade there. Like uh, more poisonous than say Lucic and Edmonton, which it sounds like his teammates really like Lucic and I'm not getting that mm -hmm. vibe out of Calgary necessarily. I'm, I'm not, it's just seems sounds a little weird and I can't say anything other than that. Like it seems to be something going on. Bruce, I need, I know you need to get going here. So uh, why don't we call it a, call it a day. Thanks for talking sure. today. Thanks for listening, everyone. And in the meantime, and in between times, this has been another edition of the Cult of Hockey podcast.